Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm James Crabtree, Executive Director of the IISS Asia here in Singapore, and today's guest host, standing in for our normal host, Maya Noens. The IISS Shangri-La Dialogue was back with a bang earlier this month, uh, underlining the importance of in-person defense diplomacy as we welcomed dozens of defense ministers and VIPs here to the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore. For the first time, a crisis in Europe loomed large over Asia's defense summit, however. So in this episode, we will analyze some of what happened and the questions that were raised. I'm joined by an all-star cast of four of my colleagues from our Berlin office, William Alberg, who works on non-proliferation and technology, joining us from Thailand, but normally be found in London, Nigel Gould-Davis, who's one of our leading experts on matters Russia and Ukraine, Maya Noens, who covers China, and Yuka Koshino from our Japan team. So let's go first to Nigel Gould-Davis. You came quite a distance to be at the dialogue. Uh, not everybody listening to this episode of Sound Strategic will have been to a Shangri-La dialogue. Before we dive into President Zelensky and the keynote address, might you just paint a picture for our listeners of what it's like to walk into the lobby of the Shangri-La Hotel on the Shangri-La dialogue weekend and the atmosphere of the event? It's a remarkable combination of a complex event with many moving parts over the three days, but also one extremely well organized and highly secure too. As you say, we saw people from not just from Asia, but from far beyond nearly every continent uh, converge on this event. The sense of pent-up desire for in-person engagement dominated the proceedings. The set-piece plenary sessions were all extremely well attended, the discussions all very lively, but also, I think what surprised me most was the sense of a, a sheer hive of activity going on around the speaking all the time. You pass through the various floors, all of these rooms, you could just sort of peek in and see, I think it's over 100 bilaterals taking place during the dialogue. Constant uh, quiet motion, sort of ordered activity, all sorts of uh, engagement, expected and unexpected and serendipitous as well. A very nice sort of aerated energy to the thing for the whole period of it. And the sense, again, people were just craving this sort of in-person opportunity. I think I'd echo that, Nigel. It was fun to walk across the lobby of the Shangri-La Hotel and see what looked like a lot of um, contented and happy people who hadn't been able to do networking and meetings in quite this way for a while. Typically, we begin the event with the keynote address, and I'll talk to Yuka about that in a second. But given you have the floor, one of the highlights this year was President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, speaking virtually from an undisclosed location in Kyiv. Could you tell us a little bit about how you thought that went, and in particular, what he said and how he approached his task as a, as a speaker to an, an Asian and Southeast Asian audience like this, really, for the first time? This was really an unprecedented development. Normally, all speakers at the Shangri-La Dialogue have to be present in person. There's no virtual uh, participation. An exception for the best reasons was made on this occasion. And I think both in terms of Zelensky's tone, demeanor, and messaging, he demonstrated all the strengths as a war leader that we've come to admire since his country was invaded on February the 24th. This is someone who has proved himself to be a superb communicator, both to his own people and also to the world. And what is really impressive, I think, is a sense that despite the tremendous 
minute-to-minute pressures he is facing as the ambassador leader of an invaded country. He nonetheless prepares thoughtfully and carefully to every engagement. He takes the trouble to understand the particular audience and communicate in ways that will appeal to them. In particular, there were two specific references to the host country, Singapore. Uh, President Zelensky quoted Lee Kuan Yew and very tellingly about the importance of international law. If there's no international law, he said, quoting Lee, the big fish would eat the small and the small would eat the shrimps and the shrimps would not exist. And the second Singapore-specific point was that he was wearing a T-shirt that had been designed by a young Singaporean, I think a 16-year-old artist, and there he was for uh, everyone in that hall and ultimately the world to see. He also cast the net of his messaging and suitably widely. It was not only about Ukraine's struggle, but the global and in particular the Asian relevance of this war uh, and of Ukraine's defense and why Asian countries and Asian leaders should care about. So I'll ask Yuka this as well in a minute, because President Kishida-san had perhaps the quote of the, the event when he talked about Ukraine today is the potential for East Asia tomorrow. But uh, Nigel, you wrote a piece just after the event reflecting on, on the influence of Ukraine at a predominantly Asian event. Could, could you give us a flavor of what you said in that piece before we talk about uh, Kishida's keynote address? I really want to draw attention to the fact that uh, a European event, this war, cast a shadow over the whole of the the Shangri-La dialogue proceedings. Nearly every Asian speaker mentioned it and expressed deep concern about it for, I think, three reasons. The first was the concern that the uh, erosion of the rules-based order anywhere in the world, the flagrant violations of the the norms of uh, of sovereignty and non-intervention, threatens the integrity of those norms everywhere else, including in Asia. The second and more specific reason was the concern that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could set a precedent for a mainland China invasion of Taiwan. And the third and most immediate and urgent concern uh, was the economic fallout from the war that is affecting Asian and other societies and economies, and in particular, the implications for inflation of commodities, especially food and energy, and the strains that is already beginning to put on Asian and other societies. So, Yuka, let me turn to you. You work in our Japan team, although based in London. Uh, And so you, as we all were, were in the audience when Prime Minister Kishida-san spoke to kick off the whole event in a packed ballroom on Friday night. Can you give us your uh, reflections on the main themes that Kishida addressed and, and what jumped out at you about what he had to say? I think there were three things that really stood out to me. First is that his speech really demonstrated Japan's continued activism in global security affairs by stating the quote that you just uh, mentioned, but Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow, which clearly makes the connection of Russia's war in Ukraine and Chinese challenges to the rules-based order and in Asia by mentioning South China Sea, East China Sea, and then the, the security instability and challenge in Taiwan Straits, but doing so without mentioning China. But it was quite clear that it was about China. His speech was also important as he is trying to play a bridging role to 
convey this message between Asia and Europe as G7's only Asian country. And then my second point would be in terms of defense, there were several important messages. One is the commitment at the leadership level to fundamentally reinforce Japan's own defense capabilities by substantially increasing the defense budget and by enhancing deterrence and response capabilities. He said that he won't rule out possession of counterstrike capabilities, which is a very important statement when Japan is reviewing the key three documents around national security and defense and procurement. And then the third point is the sign of enhancing Japan's probably unutilized tools of free and open in the Pacific in the past several years, which is the defense equipment and transport piece. The air defense radar to Philippines was probably the first on off-the-shelf sales on after revising the three principles of armed transfer in 2014. Prime Minister Kishida not only started the negotiations of defense equipment and technology transfer with Singapore during his visit, but also mentioned that Japan is willing to share its knowledge and experiences on technologies such as space satellites, AI, and unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, that I think is something to watch out. You made an interesting point to me just the day after when we, when we were talking about uh, the Prime Minister's speech, which was to compare it to Prime Minister Abe-san, who also gave a keynote uh, address at the Shangri-La Dialogue not too long ago in the middle of the last decade. And you said that Kishida-san's speech was notable for being more direct and more downbeat about the security environment. So not, not all of our listeners will be able to to read the speech of a Japanese prime minister in the way that you can. Can you just explain what you meant by that? Eight years ago, uh, when Prime Minister Abe made a speech in 2014, he exactly talked about the same um, challenges to the rules-based order in the maritime space. But I think what was different about Kishida's speech is that he came up with concrete numbers on what kind of support that he wants to offer to the region. And he also, of course, laid out the similar kind of principles like Prime Minister Abe. But um, I think it really came out strong because he was trying to provide alternative packages um, that the Southeast Asian countries could rely on. And he also mentioned that he is going to lay out further a uh, free and open Indo-Pacific peace plan by next spring, which I think is a little bit far away to announce in Shangri-La. But I think that's interesting one of our other colleagues from Japan said something to me which I thought was interesting, and I'd ask William's um, thoughts on this section of the speech as well in just a second, which was his the section of the speech on nuclear weapons. Our colleague said that she felt that that section was for a Japanese speaker, almost an emotional speech. I wondered if you could talk about that. I, it's, a, it's a personal issue for Kishida, but just talk a little bit about part three of his five arguments on nuclear Yes, definitely one of the points that I didn't mention, but on what also stood out was the, the part that he's trying to pursue a non-nuclear world. And that's, um, as you mentioned, it's personal because Prime Minister Kishida represents Hiroshima. It's his signature policy, as he also mentioned, um, the intention to host the G7 summit in 2023 in Hiroshima as well. I would also mention that it's personal because it's not necessarily a view that is shared across the LDP and the, and the government. So um, that's something to watch in the next coming years as well. Uh, William, we were going to come back in a minute to a broader set of questions about arms control, but I, I, I wondered if you had thoughts on that section uh, of uh, Prime Minister Kishida's speech as well, given your expertise in nuclear matters. What struck you about uh, the argument that he was trying to make? I think the thing that surprised me the most was that it actually came third, as you pointed out, among his uh, priorities. I have listened to a lot of Japanese statements at NPT review conferences and they tend to really emphasize the role free of nuclear weapons. To hear the prime minister do that, you could point it out, not necessarily something you hear the prime minister do that often, but it was very consistent with Japanese policy. 
There were a couple of surprises. The idea that he's going to stand up a group of elders to look at disarmament was something that I hadn't heard before. And he did encourage China to be transparent, which was very interesting as well. But he is clearly committed to a world free of nuclear weapons in cooperation with the United States. So not against nuclear deterrence at all, but to work with the United States to try to set the conditions for nuclear disarmament to be able to occur within the UN context, within existing structures, within the NPT. So no move away from the traditional uh, Japanese policy of rejecting the ban treaty, supporting the NPT and relying on the US alliance for its security. So that brings us neatly onto what is traditionally the main theme of the Shangri-La Dialogue, namely the competing speeches of the US Defense Secretary on the Saturday morning and the Chinese Defense Secretary on the Sunday morning. So Mayor Nowens, let me turn to you. So we had Secretary Lloyd Austin from the US and Defense Minister Wei Fang Har from China. They both gave quite spirited if not entirely new speeches. I, I wondered what you made of their their remarks and where it leaves us in terms of the rather parlous state of US-China relations at present. Thanks, James. I think really the situation between the two countries and their bilateral relationship hasn't changed much following the Shangri-La Dialogue. I thought what was most important at the Shangri-La Dialogue, in addition to their plenary speeches, of course, was the important bilateral meeting that they held on the sidelines. I think that will have been an important milestone in the two Minister of Defense's years to date. With regards to how Minister Wei Fenghe approached his speech, um, there was a clear emphasis, I think, of stating that China is open to building a floor under the bilateral relationship and that China views it important that the two countries get along. But of course, there are red lines that China will not have crossed. And that is mainly uh, to do with Taiwan, which he spent a considerable amount of time in his speech covering. But for Wei Fenghe, it was important, I think, also to try and paint China in a more positive picture this year than it has perhaps been seen in the last two and a half years of COVID-19. And in that sense, he spent a considerable amount of time trying to convince the audience that China is a force for peace, that China is a force for stability in the region, and indeed even globally. But at the end of the day, this vision for regional stability that General Wei sought to present in his speech really didn't differ all that much from what he said in the past and what China's position has been. A focus on win-win cooperation, a focus on respecting each other's security concerns, a focus on equality in international relations. But aside from that, really glossing over some of the more challenging developments that have happened with regards to China and actually saying that China's economic growth and China's military even have been a force for stability in the Asia-Pacific region. So in that sense, I'm not sure it was an entirely successful speech on those parts. Say a little bit more about the section on Taiwan. It was the language was, as you say, maybe not that new in terms of the position that he enunciated, but it was robust in the way that he was speaking about the importance of the Chinese red lines over Taiwan and the consequences that might come if they were crossed. Can you just tell our listeners what he said and what you thought was significant about that with regard to Taiwan? General Wei sectioned his remarks on Taiwan with three main points. 
the historic trend towards reunification is one that can't be stopped. China's position is non-negotiable. Second of all, he sent a message or attempted to send a message to the Democratic Progressive Party, so President Tsai Ing-wen's ruling party in Taiwan, that they're being used by their mastermind, not directly stating, of course, the United States, and that once the United States has fulfilled its ambition or its goal, that the DPP will then be tossed aside, so trying to create a division between the United States and Taiwan here and send a signal to Taiwan's domestic politicians. And third of all, a very clear signal to the United States, but also to any other countries, I would say, through the lens of foreign interference in Taiwanese, in China's internal affairs uh, with regards to Taiwan, that China will fight to the very end. And he used the words to say that the pursuit of Taiwan independence is a dead end and that no country can overturn or reverse this historical trend. So in that sense, that was a very, very strong signal that that any foreign interference, as he said, is doomed to fail, and that China uh, will not have this red line crossed. That language wasn't new. He, of course, put forward the alternative, which is peaceful unification, which is what China says that it hopes for, following increased attention paid to Taiwan following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he tried to send as strong a signal as he could to uh, make China's position ever more clear. One final point on Taiwan, one of the talking points emerging from the conference, albeit not from the keynotes, but from something that Chinese were reported to have said in bilateral meetings was a, a phrase to do with the way China thinks about the Taiwan Straits, which the Chinese delegation had described as, quote, international waters, unquote. And so there's been some discussion over the past week about what exactly this phrase might mean, both in geopolitical and legal terms, and whether it represents a a change and a hardening in the Chinese position as they and the United States and the government of Taiwan square off with one another over cross-strait relations. Could you just give your sense of how you understand this and, and what we should make of this development? That sentence in and of itself was interesting to note, and I think it fits within a broader development of lawfare around the Taiwan issue and, and China's approach to resolving this issue peacefully. So we've seen in the past few years a change to China's Coast Guard law that allows for the Coast Guard to play a more active or offensive role within the region and to defend also in armed ways with weapons China's territorial waters, which of course it includes around uh, the waters around Taiwan. Taiwan. Secondly, we've seen China dismiss there is ever or has ever been anything such as a Taiwan Strait median line, which in the past they have, and now they say that that has never existed, and so that's not something that needs to be respected. And now thirdly, this this statement of Taiwan Strait is uh, not international waters. Again, I think this is trying to lay a groundwork in legal terms, uh, and certainly in domestic legal terms, to perhaps justify China taking certain actions. But I wouldn't read too much into it in the sense that we now expect the situation across the Taiwan Strait to change dramatically in the near-term future. Um, I think this fits a broader pattern of how China addresses its regional and territorial disputes. William, let me let me turn to you. So in Berlin, you run our team, which looks at non-proliferation and arms control and other matters relating to strategic affairs and technology. You've already touched on Kishida's nuclear remarks. What jumped out for you about the way that, that your issues were covered at the, the Shangri-La dialogue? We didn't have a huge amount on North Korea, which is one issue of proliferation, which often is discussed. But what caught your eye as you were watching the event? 
You mentioned DPRK, North Korean nuclear weapons, which didn't come up as frequently as I expected. Japan did raise it. South Korea, Minister Lee said he believed that a nuclear test may be imminent. So you'd expect South Korea to, to focus on that topic. Uh, the U.S. also mentioned it a bit, but you're right, it wasn't as big a focus. India, Pakistan was not as much uh, in the room as I expected. This is my first time at Shangri-La, and, and I had thought we might hear a little bit about that. But on arms control nonproliferation, aside from Kushida, really a, a topic that didn't come up terribly often. I was struck just in looking at nuclear deterrence and other issues like that, that South Korea, again, Minister Lee, categorically ruled out U.S. nuclear basing on South Korea's territory, which is something that has come up in South Korean debates publicly and in parliament. So I was surprised that uh, in response to a question, he seemed to rule that out completely. And the other really remarkable thing for me was, as Maya was talking about Minister Fengha's remarks, he's a former head of China's strategic rocket forces. He seemed incredibly comfortable talking about nuclear topics in a way that ministers don't normally do. And he said that China's nuclear buildup was moderate and appropriate, but it had made impressive progress. And he said, I hope you watched the 70th National Day Parade in 2019, because all of those systems are deployed now. And that includes the Dongfeng 41, mobile ICBM, and other systems that we've been watching. He also mentioned the hypersonic missile test. He seemed to confirm that. And hinted as well about uh, what we saw as a fractional orbiting nuclear system that was tested last year and caused tremendous consternation. There was a great deal about risk situations. I note that freedom of navigation as an issue for the South China Sea and tying that to the Black Sea parallels, uh, the need for a free and open uh, Black Sea as much as we need a free and open uh, South China Sea was an issue that... uh, I think was very interesting. But you're right, it was not as much a nuclear non-proliferation discussion, North Korea discussion, uh, as I expected, really was sort of acknowledging this level of competition, the return of great power competition uh, at the highest levels. And so these ideas of cooperative security just didn't come up as often. Instead, it was partnerships, alliances, minilateralism, and multilateralism to try to manage great power competition rather than you know, looking to the P5, the UN Security Council, to solve any of our problems. And again, Minister Kashida really emphasized the need for UN reforms in order to tackle global problems in a world where the Security Council is not going to come to agreement on things. On this podcast, we have someone from Japan, the United Kingdom, Holland, uh, but you're our only American. And so I, I feel I should ask you what you made of Lloyd Austin. <laughs> Answer the question in general terms. And, you know, how did you feel about his speech? But it was notable as he was trying to reassure nations in the audience about U.S. progress in the Indo-Pacific. He did talk quite a lot about technological progress. There was a, a sort of meaty section in his speech where he talked about the kind of technologies the U.S. was developing to underline the U.S.'s reputation as a military technology leader. So I wonder if you might just take us through that part of Austin's speech, as well as you know, giving your marks out of 10 to the U.S. Defense Secretary. I thought it was a very beautifully written and delivered speech. I did think that he was trying to run out the clock to minimize questions as much as possible, but it was beautifully constructed and beautifully delivered. He talked about technology and he talked about so much emphasis on partnerships and U.S. minilateralism, small groups of countries working together, uh, like-minded countries working together, Um, working with structures within Indo-Pacific region as well to try to bolster security and to help to contain threats to freedom and countries that wanted to work together. 
But I did note that on technology, while he emphasized the importance of U.S. leadership in technology, and he did mention shipborne anti-missile lasers uh, in response to a question from one of our colleagues, he, he rather sharply said he didn't want to get into technologies, which was interesting. He raised it in the speech, he talked about it in the speech, but then he tried to dodge a question when asked to specifically list some of the technologies that will help with defense and deterrence. So I did enjoy it. I thought it was very much focused on partnership and, and a very humble and alliance-focused uh, American approach to the Indo-Pacific, which, which I think is very good and will allow us to make lots of friends and, and do the work that we need to do. But he did seem to retreat a little bit from challenge on Taiwan, which, as Maya mentioned, opened up some vulnerability for Fenghua, who also took advantage of apparent discomfort with questions to say that he would answer all the questions that, that the audience had time for. So it's a really interesting contrast in how the U.S. and Chinese representatives seem to be affected by both the bilateral and other remarks. The other thing I wanted to mention was Feng seemed to be reacting to Biden's statements earlier in the week that called for China not to supply weapons material to Russia. Uh, he seemed to say that, that they were not providing material support to Russia, which I thought was really interesting. Austin, obviously affected by the bilateral, Feng uh, watching Austin's speech and reacting to it and also reacting to President Biden's remarks earlier in the week, coming out swinging on Taiwan, but a little bit more careful, I thought, on Russia. Thank you all four of you for that. Uh, what I would like to do now is just ask each of you in turn to pick a moment of the weekend that struck out for you, either something you've mentioned already or perhaps something that caught your eye that you haven't already mentioned. William, you were a first-time attendee, <laughs> first-time listener, first-time caller at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Was there a particular, a particular <laughs> moment either uh, on the sidelines or in the summit itself that resonated for you? The finest panel was the last panel because really... Minister uh, Seru Iratu wins the Comedy Award and John Chipman wins the Improvisation Award. In the middle of uh, Seru Iratu's speech, his phone went off and there was a, a statement coming out of his phone that said, your security is our highest priority. And Chipman immediately chimed in and said, that should be the Shangri-La Dialogue's motto. And I also thought Minister Ng's wonderful speech really just sounded so beautiful. The, the, it just made me feel good about some of the worrying things that I'd heard, it was very calming. So I really thought that final panel was just a great way to end. I would agree with that. So that's the minister from Fiji, well, part of a number of Pacific Island ministers who we had this year, who gave this moment of high comedy towards the end. And also our host, Minister Ong, the Defence Minister of Singapore, on the, the seventh and final plenary. That was, a, that was a highlight. It brought the event to a close nicely. Nigel, what jumped out at you? It was really what happened just before President Zelensky appeared on the screen at, at four o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So our Director General John Chipman had asked everyone to stay in the hall and not leave. And not only did that happen, but lots of other people who hadn't been in the hall for the previous panel all appeared. It really was standing room only. And of course, the, the, the staff of this uh, premier defence summit in Asia is all about security threats and dangers. There's no more live and real and urgent example of, of such a threat than the leader of a country facing an existential threat from uh, invasion by a large neighbor uh, addressing us all from an undisclosed location. It was a genuinely powerful and emotional moment. There was a real pathos to his remarks that I think there were a few, uh, few lumps in throats even amongst our audience of hardened uh, securityocrats. Yuka, what struck you for your moment of uh, SLD 22? 
It was my first SLD experience as well, but maybe I'll mention the Young Leaders Program that IISS always um, have. And we had a great group of experts. They contributed in many ways, including I was chairing one of the new type of security challenges around emerging technology and security. And we had representatives from the private sector as well, which is an important actor in this uh, security theme as well, who also had great positive energy on trying to find the common challenges and trying to find um, a positive a solution to it. But also just the fact that they've also contributed immensely to the, the debate and the plenaries by asking tough questions to their leaders as well. So really appreciated their contributions. Maya, what struck you as you were watching? Two moments. First, I think General Wave's Q&A performance, I think, was really well done, very strong, as Williams had compared to that of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. One thing that struck out to me in his Q&A was that he changed his language on Ukraine. And so during his speech, he referred to the Ukraine crisis. And actually, during his Q&A, he switched to mentioning it as a war. And that's the first time that I've heard a Chinese leader actually describe what's happening in Ukraine as an outright war. That language change is important. It did signal, in addition to all the other language that Wei Fenghe used, to talk about what's happening in Ukraine and its bilateral relationship with Russia, China's bilateral relationship with Russia. I think it did signal a, a growing lack of ease and, and discomfort, I think, within that bilateral relationship that we should take note of. Secondly, I think what was really important in the last panel was the speech by the Minister of Defense from Fiji, not just for the comedy element of it, of course, but also because I think he brought forward a really important theme in this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, and that is climate change. And he had a very powerful statement, which was that in our blue Pacific continent, uh, machine guns, fighter jets, gray ships, and green battalions are not our primary security concern. And the single greatest threat to our very existence is climate change and our hopes and dreams of prosperity depend on that and, and are threatened at the moment. I think that was extremely important to be noted. And I think it goes beyond the traditional way that we define security and really brings into perspective how other smaller countries in the region view threats to their security more broadly. It's a great point on which to end. So uh, I want to say thank you to all four of my panelists on uh, Sound Strategic, Maya Owens, Nigel Gould-Davis, Yuka Kashino, and William Alberk. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more in-depth analysis, transcripts of the speeches at the Shangri-La Dialogue, and recordings of videos of the ministers as they were delivering them, go to the IISS website or have a look at our social media feeds on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll also find more information in our show notes. As ever, we'd be extremely grateful if you follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you have to listen to your favorite podcasts and keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. Thank you, and see you all next time.